can he change the Constitution? You know, so can he change the way he's then elected? Can he change the way Congress works? Can he change the way legislation is passed? And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to a podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can be to for a time populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. Europeans really hate Donald Trump. And for the best of reasons. They cannot stand his bragging. They cannot stand his open sort of racist appeals. They find him culturally repellent. But, you know, at some level, they also love Donald Trump. They love that Donald Trump reinforces every European prejudice about America, that he is the ugliest of Americans, that he encapsulates everything we've always wanted to look down upon in America. And that's understandable, but I think there's a danger here because Europeans have not been as forthright and as clear in standing up to challenges to democracy as they might have been either. Just to name one example, Viktor Orban's party Fidesz is still a member of the European People's Party, the grouping of center-right parties in the European Parliament, to which, for example, Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats also belong. The real story of the last years is not about how ridiculous a figure Donald Trump is. It is the failure even of well-intentioned conservative elites in both Western Europe and North America to stand up to their principles. And so... The European temptation to laugh at Donald Trump masks some of the ways in which the challenge we face on both sides of the Atlantic is actually quite similar. I'm really thrilled to have Anne Applebaum on the show today. Anne is a weekly columnist for Washington Post and a professor of practice at the London School of Economics. And she's written these two really influential books about the history of Central and Eastern Europe called Gulag, about the, the Gulags and the terrible system of punishment in the Soviet Union and its allied states, and the Iron Curtain, the crushing of Eastern Europe, about how the communists took over in Central and Eastern Europe. But she's reported on the transition towards democracy in Poland and other countries in 1989. She's worked on British politics and American politics, and she's been one of the most astute critics of Donald Trump from the beginning. We just had a great conversation about the threat of social media, about Vladimir Putin, about what to learn from how dictators have crushed democratic societies in the past, whether there's any parallels to the way in which the Soviets took over in, in Poland and Hungary in the late 40s and early 50s. We started the conversation with that. It's, it's a fascinating topic. And I've just learned so much about how to think about this moment from, from that conversation. Welcome to the show, Anne. So I'll start with the first and sort of most obvious question, which is that, you know, you've seen the fight against populism in many different countries, in many different contexts, and you've studied the takeover of authoritarian regimes um, historically. So what perspective does that give you on how Americans are doing at resisting Donald Trump? And is that even a useful set of comparison points, or is it the wrong way to think about it? Well, first of all, you, you do have to be careful um, and I try and constantly remind myself, you know, that just because just because I have the 1940s in Eastern Europe in the back of my head, that doesn't mean this is the 1940s in Eastern Europe all the time. 
But actually looking at the the techniques of democratic takeover, which is what happened, for example, um, in the countries of Eastern Europe after the Second World War. Mm. I, although they weren't obviously democracies, they were destroyed societies. But the, the, the attempt is maybe I should say institutional takeover. How does a sort of, you know, how does a very determined ideological group, in that case backed by foreigners, take over the state? Mm understanding what it was that interested them the most and what the what were the institutions that were the most vulnerable actually does help if you want to understand how democracy could go wrong in a western country so we're not in that position you know there hasn't been a massive war and there isn't a totalitarian front group trying to take over the united states nevertheless looking at for example what were the most vulnerable institutions in Poland and Hungary and East Germany after the war does help you think a little bit about the United States. So, so what were they? I mean, so you well, so write about this a lot in, in Iron Curtain, the crushing of Eastern Europe, and right. you really sort of take the reader in masterful detail through how the Soviet Union essentially managed to use local communist groups and so on to colonize those countries. And sort of in retrospect, it seems very obvious to us that, well, you know, I mean, the Second World War ends and the countries in which the communist troops are sort of stationed end up being part of the Eastern Bloc and the others end up being part of the Western Blocs and this is all inevitable. But actually, these were societies that often had pseudo-free elections or free elections a couple of years after the war. And they had universities that, and they had a tradition of free press and they had what we would now call civil society. They had all kinds of voluntary institutions. They had private schools. They had churches. They had, in some cases, very powerful churches. You know, There, there, there were a lot of things that should have stood in the way and, you know... So, they so why didn't, didn't they? What did, well, they what? The, before we get back to the United mm. States, which is obviously much different, you know, you have to read my 450-page book for me, to, <laughs> for me to give you the whole story. Well, the but, point of you being on the podcast is that you just have to listen to this <laughs> podcast and you learn right. all of those things. No, but the, you know, the, the, the institutions in, in the case of Eastern Europe were, were very weakened by the war and by the kind of blow to national confidence that the war created. I mean, once your society has been taken over and undermined, you have a lot less faith in its institutions and in its political elite. And it's, you know, a lot of people said after the war, well, look, you know, where did the so-called democratic elites or the national elites get us before the war? Nowhere they led to this catastrophe. Why mm. should we believe them this second time? Right. So there was a, that was a, that was a very, you know, you had almost like a catastrophic loss of trust in the national elite. Again, nothing like what we're seeing anywhere in the West today, but it, that's, that was one of the you know, that's an important thing to remember because loss of trust is, I think, part of the problem um, at the moment. You also had an economic catastrophe. You know, people were, you know, were very desperate for any kind of institutional stability. And so they would cling on to whatever there was. And, you know, so the so the, the Russians came in and set up institutions and people joined them immediately because that's, I mean, for example, they set up secret police units in each one of these countries mm -hmm. and people joined them because that was a source of money and power. You know, right. right away, you could have money and power having been oppressed by the Nazis for the previous five years. And that was very attractive to a lot of people for understandable reasons. So there are a lot of reasons why that happened. But it's also important to look at one of the things I found interesting when writing that book was looking at what it was that the Soviet, the, both the Soviet Union and its kind of local communist partners, what did they think was important? Like, what did they right. do first? Right. When they got there, and it was slightly different than what I had expected. I looked a little bit randomly, and I started out thinking, "Well, they must have wanted to take over the newspapers." Right, right. And it turned out they weren't particularly interested in the newspapers. Huh. They were interested in the radio. 
Right, because that's the mass media. Because it was mass media. And it was the sort of internet of its time. In other words, they thought this is the way to speak to people directly. We're going to, we're going to. And the cable news of its time as well, right? Yeah, exactly. And we're going to let the national intellectuals go on talking to each other. And okay, they can publish their little papers and they can do whatever they want. But we're going to speak directly to the people. And therefore, it's really, really important that we have control of the radio stations. And, and they did that. As a side for, and they did. Note. I mean, literally first when the Red Army came into East Berlin, was it wasn't East Berlin? Sorry, when it was in Berlin, literally on day two they take over the radio station. Interesting. And 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 not only they take over the radio station, they immediately staff it with Germans who've been trained in Moscow during the war for that purpose, and they bring them over and put them in charge of the radio station. So that's like they're preparing for that in advance, and that that's one of the things they thought about. Yeah. Um, and so therefore, you know, you see the importance of new forms of media and the importance of media that reaches the masses or reaches large numbers of people over the heads of the political class. Um, and you can see, you know, look, this is it's not, it's not just Donald Trump who figured this out, but lots of other politicians have figured out that that's what Twitter is. Hmm. I mean, it's maybe not very efficient and you don't reach as many people. And I think actually it's becoming discredited. But as a, you know, as an as an instinct, you know, look, we don't want to be filtered by, you know, commentators. We don't want you know, we don't want our message scrambled. We want to just speak directly to the people. We're yeah, going to yeah. do it on Twitter. That's that's a sort of, that was exactly the Red Army instinct after the Second World War. So the first thing they did is to take over radios and mass media. What what else did they do that, that surprised you? What else did they do that sort of in conversation with what might might not be happening now? Well, the, the other surprising thing was, and then there was one unsurprising thing, but the other surprising thing was they were incredibly interested in youth groups and young people. And they focused a lot of attention. For example, right after the war, there were these spontaneously organized, again, in Germany, sort of young Christian Democrats, in Poland, various um, various young church youth groups and so on. This was something they, they focused like a laser on these groups. They sought to break them up. They sought to undermine them, take them over, in some cases, arrest the leaders and get rid of them. So focusing on young, because they sort of reckoned, all right, the old people are out and they're not going to, you know, we'll never convert them and they're all religious, so forget it, but we're going to focus on, they were great believers in, they were like the Jesuits. They believed Mm. that you can shape people's brains. You know, if you just give them the right information and the right education, then, then they'll, you know, they'll, you can, you can mold them. People will be what you want them to be. Um, And so that was, you know, and again, it's kind of like, there's the Red Army in Berlin, city destroyed, you know, summer of 1945. And there, they're worrying about like, kindergartens, you know, because they care a lot about how young people are going to be educated. And that's something they care about immediately. So, and then it was one thing you expected, you said. The one thing I expected was they were very interested in setting up the secret police. Right. And 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 sort of targeting the immediate enemies of the regime and eliminating them. So they were very interested in um, how do we, you know, how do we, how do we get control over? And by secret police, I mean secret police. Actually, maybe not even a great word. It's was the political police. So creating a kind of alt police force that isn't not the guys who catch criminals, but a kind of political police force which is focused, which is directly loyal to the Communist Party, and which is focused on controlling the Communist Party's enemies. And that they do again. They do that before they get there. They they start working on that in the thir- late thirties. You know, they start creating the. The, the 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 basis of what would be the Polish, Hungarian, Czech, East German secret police forces are created in, you know, 1940, yeah. five years before they arrive. Fascinating. So so just thinking out loud here, it seems like there are some parallels, but on the whole, there's sort of actually, 
I think reassures me about the situation. We're yes. In, right. Yes. Because there's not, you know, the 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 Trump kindergarten. It was Trump University no. once upon a time, but that wasn't very political or ideological. <laughs> and it was I don't a great think. success either. And it was a great success. <laughs> um, there's not the Trump kindergarten. Um, of course, they are trying to colonize media and public space in certain ways um, and using Twitter to their effect, certainly allying themselves, not just with new websites like Breitbart, but also increasingly taking over organizations like Fox News. But, but it's certainly not... Uh, the complete control of them. No, they don't have that aim. I mean, the thing to the thing to watch out for is, you know, you have to think what are the modern versions of these things. Um, David Frum has written very well about this. So, the so you know, in the 1930s and again in the 1940s in the in the communist era, you had in the Nazi era you had brown shirts. In the Soviet era, you had these kind of thugs who became secret policemen who were. Um, you know, often came from the criminal world who were used to intimidate people. So what's the modern equivalent of that? I mean, maybe it's not going to look the same. Right. Maybe it would be intimidating people online. Or maybe it would be intimidating people in particular communities. Um, you know, when I saw Trump's, um, when I saw his his rallies during the election, I found those very creepy because the the idea of the violent mass rally that inspires, you know, that makes people sort of angry. And, you know, that's that's a that's an old tactic. Um, and it was used, it comes back to the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, you also saw it very recently used in Ukraine. I mean, you can see it in other, you know, you can see it in other countries. So that that's a sort of familiar and known tactic. And the question is then, is there an online version of that? Or there, are there ways in which they can try and intimidate people online? I mean, I don't see right now that, that Trump or his administration is well organized enough to think any of this stuff through. But the thing about Trump seems to be that he's an authoritarian by instinct, 100%, but by ideology, sort of 5%. I mean, but, but also, but, you know, you have, to, you, have to be, you have to know what you're doing. If you want to take over right. the state, you have to have a plan to take over the state. You have to go institution by institution, and you have to, I mean, it's, you know, and it's, you know, and you've seen it done in other countries. I mean, it was done in Venezuela. Um, there's a government trying to do it now in Poland, who I think will fail, actually. But, I mean, you have to, you have to take aim at, at, at each one, and he hasn't... He hasn't really shown the capacity to do that. So so I think that there's this sort of incredible veering from optimism to pessimism in America over the last months. You know, 10 days into Trump's administration, people were freaked out, right? I mean, there was the inaugural speech, which reportedly uh, George W. Bush had called some weird shit. There was the first executive orders, and people really felt like Bannon is in charge of this. He knows what he's doing, and it's just going to get out of control. And then things sort of calmed down for a little bit. And around the 100-day mark, I know I was asked to write for a few places, you know, the 100-day summary, and everybody was saying, oh, it's fine, and the, the, the administration is mellowed. We're resisting successfully. Don't worry about it. And then the firing of Comey happened, a speculation about possibly firing Mueller and so on, and suddenly it's sort of back to, oh, my God, you know, he's taking over the state. And and what I'm struck by when I think about certainly opinion outside of those countries, um, American view of what was happening in Russia in the early 2000s, the American view of what was happening in Turkey throughout the 2000s, is that we sort of actually for a long time were reassured by things. These people were not saying openly we're destroying democracy. Erdogan was celebrated as a great Democrat. Um, mm, and he one was. He American was elected. After another thought, we can do business with Putin. You know, he's not so bad internationally, certainly, but even domestically, you know. 
so is it because we were naive and we just thought we live in this age that's inexorably moving towards democracy and we don't have to worry about those things now? And and it might be a case of overcorrecting if we suddenly think, you know, Trump doesn't seem to be destroying the system. Let's not worry too much. Um, and say, no, no, actually, we have to worry because look at those other countries. Or was that a real lesson to take away from those? That, 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 that you only recognize the pattern over time and that the, the main agents may not even know what they're doing. But Orban, when he took power may not have known exactly the degree to which he wants to destroy democracy in Hungary. It's sort of year after year, no, new things happen, and it takes on a dynamic of its own, and, and that's where you wind up going. Well, in the case of Putin, if you look at Putin and Erdogan and Orban, uh, you're absolutely right that in all three of those cases, you had people who came to power democratically and who then changed the system, either in order to stay in power or in order to alter it fundamentally so that a decade later, they weren't democracies anymore. In each one of those cases, you had the ability in practice. I mean, in, in Hungary, it was in um, in reality, but you had the ability to effectively change the constitution. And so the question, the really turning point with Trump, and we aren't even close to that yet, is can he change the constitution? Mm. You know, so can he change the way he's then elected? Can he change the way the Congress works? Can he change the way legislation is passed? And I don't have the sense that he has that kind of, certainly he himself doesn't have that kind of legal understanding or strategic thinking, but, you know, so, so, and so, if there so, are people around him do, who do, we haven't heard from them yet. I mean, yeah. so far, his attempts to undermine institutions mostly involve blocking them. I mean, for example, what has been done to the State Department, right. which is simply to abandon it, you know, don't use it, don't talk to it, don't appoint people. Mm. Um you know, run Americans for you know run American foreign policy out of the White House or out of Jared Kushner's office or out of Mattis's office. It's not really clear right now how it's being run, um, and so it that's may not a, be being run at all. It may not be being run at all, as we've just seen the last couple of days. But um, you know, so you can see him. You, you can see how you could abandon an institution, or, or you know, or what's been done to healthcare. You know, you just make it more and more difficult for insurance companies to cooperate. You block well, this piece of it or that piece of it, and sooner or later, a year from now, it's just not going to work anymore. Mm. Um, and you can see that how they could do that across a whole range of institutions um, in the United States. You know, what I don't see yet is how he, um, you know, ensures you know, ensures that he's reelected without competition, for example, as as Orban does, or or that he passes a referendum giving him extra powers as Erdogan did, or that he changes the law so that he can, you know, have a third term and a fourth term like Putin did. I don't see that yet. So I agree that that's the bit I'm most optimistic about as well for two reasons. The first, that you do need a little bit of strategic capacity and imagination in order to subvert a state. Even Orban and Erdogan and Putin, who may not have had a very clear idea of needing to destroy democracy to serve their aims when they came into office, from the beginning systematically tried to co-opt state institutions by filling them with their own cronies, by getting rid of enemies and so on. And for me, the clearest sign that Trump He's not doing that, not, I think, because he's too decent to do it, but simply because he doesn't understand the necessity of doing it for what I do take at some level, at some inchoate level to be his goals, was the appointment of Neil Gorsuch. Mm -hmm. So he has an opportunity to fill a seat on the Supreme Court with somebody, and he goes for somebody who, you know, helps Republicans probably uh, accomplish a lot of their policy goals, 
But you also, by all we know, is, you know, a consummate jurist who certainly cares deeply about the Constitution and is not going to bend it out of shape in order to serve Trump. Uh, That seems, from the point of view of an authoritarian playbook, like a clear missed opportunity. But there's also a broader question here about whether or not, to what degree the rules of a game matter. And political scientists always want to say that they matter completely, for sort of boring reasons. I mean, essentially, there was a couple of decades in political science when nobody thought about institutions. So every prominent political scientist today sort of cut their teeth as a grad student rebelling against that and saying, no, it's all about institutions. And so all political scientists think it's all about institutions. And I tend to think often that it's not so much about institutions because you see populist parties rising and doing well in all of these different systems that really differ from each other substantively. Um, But here, perhaps it is a story of institutions, right? So what would have to happen in order to change the constitution and really weaken the ability of your position to run an effective campaign in 2020? Well, first of all, you might want to colonize the electoral commission, as Orban did in Hungary. But there's not one electoral commission. There's not even 50 electoral commissions. It's a whole set of state officials, county officials, right? I mean... That is a tremendous logistical nightmare trying to influence and change that. And there's certainly no indication that in any systematic way uh, Trump is doing that. And the same for the actual constitution, right? I mean, in many countries, it's enough to have two-thirds majority in parliament, um, often even a lower majority in parliament. And you can change really how elections are carried out in a very substantive way. Um, Here, some of how elections are carried out um, is decided at the state level. And changing the U.S. Constitution is an incredibly complicated thing for which you need an incredibly broad coalition. So so that seems like a positive sign as well, right? No, no, those are very positive. I mean, the one thing to look at that that also links both Orban, Erdogan, and Putin was what they did to the media because none of them actually did censorship. Mm. Um, and the modern – and this is, this is where we begin to part rather rapidly from my 1940s model, but – Modern authoritarianism or sort of modern sort of light authoritarianism of the kind that those countries represent, you don't have censorship. Instead, what you do is you undermine the business model of newspapers that you don't like or you make sure that people who advertise in newspapers or television programs that you don't like have trouble. So this is – you know, and this is something that Orban absolutely did. You know, so the idea was to – eliminate the opposition newspapers by basically saying to anybody who advertises in them doesn't get government contracts. And this, of course, is something that is much easier to do in a small European country where lots of businesses, one way or the other, even if they're private, are dependent on the government and much harder to do in the United States. Although you could imagine, I mean, if you look at ownership of CNN or ownership of some of the larger you know, broadcasting organizations in the United States, you can imagine an attempt to intimidate them. You can sort of play out how that might work. That's a modern technique. I mean, obviously, in in Eastern Europe, after World War II, very quickly, there was very heavy censorship of every publication. But in the beginning, as you were saying, you know, people were interested in radio, but not in the newspaper, but let people talk to each other. And there's certainly an equivalent of that in a lot of populist regimes now, right? I well, mean, the equi- we- yeah, the equivalent is we we allow in, in, in Russia. I mean, you allow the intellectuals to have three or four little newspapers or websites, and you just make sure they get nowhere near television. Right, and that's essentially they the state controls television, and 
you can talk about anything you want as long as not too many people hear it. And that's the Yeah, that's as long as you have a literary journal where you speak to your 10,000 people back and forth and the sort of critical intellectuals can feel like they're doing something by right. talking to each but, other. Right, but, it's, but it doesn't um, actually affect most people. Another similar tactic to that is eliminating sort of inst- cultural institutions that harbor people who you suspect don't like you. So you, you shut down funding for contemporary art. Right. Or you shut down funding for universities. This is a this is absolutely a Russian, Hungarian, Turkish um, tactic. You know, so the so even though you know you can't identify the people at um, the Central European University who are against you, you just know in general you dislike places where there's lots of open conversation and debate, and so you try and um, defund them or you make them elite. You know, you cut off their legal standing or something like that. So that's also um, attacking. That's another one also that I would find hard to see how you would replicate here, except, of course, in the small ways that the government can do it, for example, by cutting off arts funding, which it, they, there is some intention of doing. Yeah, and, and that's happening for, of course, you know, and there perhaps again, actually, um, America is so much less reliant on the government than other yep. countries, right? I mean, even yep. in a country like Germany, such a vast share of spending on arts and culture is through government funding. Yep. But if you really used that as a lever to change national culture and discourse, it would have a huge impact. Yeah. Whereas in America, you know, you, you shut down the National Endowment for the Arts, you defund it, as the Trump administration is planning to do. It certainly affects a lot of worthy artistic causes and so on, but it doesn't change the nature of a cultural conversation. You don't shut America, down the Metropolitan right? Museum of Art. You don't shut... I mean, there are lots of things you don't shut down. I mean, paradoxically, that what you would shut down with the National Endowment is you would mostly shut down the sort of rural and provincial and local programs that they do. Interesting, yeah. That's actually a lot of their state-funded money goes into little cultural festivals in small places that don't have alternate sources, you know, alternate sources of funding. So you would be actually... Goldman Sachs is not going to donate a lot of money to a little cultural center. No, so the Met will be fine and, you know, the San Francisco Opera will be fine, but lots of rural and small town cultural organizations will not be. So that's that would be the effect of that. So we've talked a lot about Putin and Russia, but more sort of as a model for how domestically societies get taken over by authoritarian populists. And we haven't talked so much about the threat that some of those countries now pose in themselves to Western liberal societies. So so I want to get into that a little bit because I know that you've been thinking for a very long time about the threat that Putin poses to democracies both in Central Europe and in Western Europe and North America. And I've been thinking, you know, in preparing this conversation, but perhaps we don't distinguish enough between slightly different kinds of threats from countries like Russia, right? So the first is the threat that Putin poses directly to established democracies in the West, whether it's through, um, you know, hacking the DNC email servers and things like that and trying to influence the election, trying to undermine trust in the election, and perhaps to some degree, you know, potentially a military threat he poses. Right? The second is um, the threat that Putin poses to fledgling democracies or even just independent states in Central and Eastern Europe, right? So the way in which he has annexed part of Ukraine's territory, the way in which he's trying to make it impossible for Ukraine to be a successful, thriving society uh, anchored in the West and so on. But then the third, which actually strikes me as in some ways most important and least talked about, is the threat that the kinds of methods that he's pioneering and using could pose in the coming decades, whoever they're wielded by. Right? I mean, not just by Russia, which is in many ways a declining power, but by China and other authoritarian governments that might want to hack into our elections and undermine trust in our system and and, and and subvert what we're doing. So 
how, I mean, which of these three things are you actually most worried about? Or how do we, you know, do you think they're all, they're all part of, of all package, but is it helpful to distinguish between those at all? So it's helpful to distinguish between them in looking at their impact. And, and actually, one of the things that's very important to understand about, well, particularly about Russian information warfare, for lack of a better, Russian disinformation, um, is that it's very tailored to particular places. So the kinds of groups and people it supports in France are very different from the kinds of groups and people it supports in Ukraine. I mean, it's a, it looks for um, weak sides of, you know, democratic societies and pushes on them. So it funds, you know, the, it's happy to fund the far right. They're happy to fund the far left. They're also very happy to work with corrupt groups and companies all over. Everywhere, so that's um, and, and often in the same country, we're supporting far left and far absolutely. right parties at the same time. Absolutely, right? I mean, one of the jokes about the French election was that of the four final candidates, you know, and I, I, I can't prove this and wouldn't write it, but supposedly three of the four had Russian links of various kinds, and that's so that's the far left, the far right, and the kind of business friendly center right, um, and then the ones who won were. Um, was the one Macron was the one who didn't have any, which actually well, tells you something about effectiveness. But that's another. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think it actually uh, also puts in context or in perspective some of triumphalism around Macron's victory. I mean, I'm heartened by his victory, and it was quite decisive in the second round. But the fact of the matter is that in the first round of a presidential poll, over seventy percent of the vote went to candidates who had a very very soft line on Russia. Yes, no, and in true. some ways Absolutely. we came out lucky that yeah, the one no. who wasn't ended up winning. Yeah, no, no, that's true. Um, that's true. No, but returning to your to your original point, um, I think it is important to focus on, um, you know. So, but what I was saying is important to focus on. What are the real effects in each country? You know, because you know some of the, not get too hung up on who's a who's a mature democracy and who's an immature democracy and so on. Because actually, the tactics are often the same. It's always just a question of, you know, which countries are more susceptible because of the nature of their societies. And generally speaking, the Russians do better in more corrupt societies because they find more people they can buy and mm -hmm. more people they can work with um, than they do in. And also, we might have a much easier path convincing people that they can't trust anything. Yeah, like and that this, yeah, and exactly. The, the, the that the main that the the state is weak, and you know, it's not. It doesn't represent you, and it's corrupt. I mean, so it's it's essentially they do well in corrupt societies. In fact, I think the the reason we should this is another topic to discuss a little bit later, maybe. But I think one of the reasons they've done well in the United States is the suspicion that many people have that the United States is corrupt in many ways. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that they use. I know I'm sort of derating you, but I think that's absolutely right, that the reason why they could succeed in America is that people had such low trust in the electoral system in the first place, such low trust in political parties in the first place, and that they have lost a certain amount of faith in democratic institutions and the, and even the importance of democracy. And, and, and one of the ways of thinking about how to confront this threat domestically within our societies is not just, you know, making sure that political campaigns have better IT security so that they can't hack into our uh, email servers. It's not just, you know, trying to retaliate more clearly when things like that happen so that foreign powers have less of an incentive for, for, for doing those kinds of shenanigans, just getting away with them scot-free as they have done so far. But it is also actually fortifying the intellectual defenses of a political defense that our own citizens have against being taken in by those well, kinds of also, things. Also, I mean, the, 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 the word I'd like to use is oligarchy. 
people suspect, and this is, by the way, one of the things that unites Britain and America right now and may and partly explains why the politics of the U.S. and the U.K. are so messed up, whereas they're relatively less messed up in some other places. Um, people have the sense that there is this, in the last decade, this class of very rich people has been created. Yeah. They have an undue influence on politics, on the economy, on everything else. Um, of course, they have people suspected, and of course, there is such a thing. Um, it has this this oligarchy has all kinds of links to oligarchs in other countries, in China and in Russia, um, and it acts more in its own interests than it does in the interests of the country. I mean, the most important link between Trump and Russia is simply that Trump, you know, feels at home in Russia. He admires. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He admires the Russian oligarchs. He wants to be like them. He shares a sensibility. They invest in his properties. His know. living room looks like their his living, living room looks like it could belong to one of them. You know, he, he, you know, his daughter um, socializes with, uh, with them. You know, uh, Roman Abramovich's wife is a friend of Ivanka's. You know, mm. so they they move in the same spheres and they you know they 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 have the same set of values i mean that's the biggest scandal about him of right, all right. but and, and and that's true more broadly right i mean there's a story to be told about you know some secret dealings that trump has with the philippines and that's why he endorses somebody quite as ghastly as rodrigo duterte but that's clearly not true and i don't know whether that is reassuring or makes me even more scared the point of the matter is that he genuinely admires yes. the president of a country yes. who says Just kill all the drug dealers or anybody who might possibly yes. in any way look like a drug dealer. And and Trump sees that and thinks, that's great. Yeah, no, 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 that's that's true. But to, to return to your point about other countries using these methods, I mean, this is absolutely true and it's already started. Um, and the only reason that the Russians were, are first is because the Russians are... Um, much more sophisticated about the West. They care about the West. Mm. They study the West. And they have many decades of experience. Many decades of experience it. of trying to do exactly this, undermine democracy. You know, the fact is now they've got better at using, I don't know, Facebook and Twitter in order to do it. But they've been doing it for many years. Um, and they have, you know, and they and they and they understand it. They get it. I mean, the Chinese, I don't think, do understand the West to anything like that level, and certainly not the Iranians. But is there a possibility that others will use methods like this in the future? Yes, absolutely. Um, if they're not used in the U.S., they'll be used elsewhere. I mean, I'm, you know, chi China's natural area where it might begin to try and um, try and influence democratic politics is probably Southeast Asia, not Europe. Right. Um, but but the the tactics are there, the possibilities are out there, and now um, you know everybody can use them. I mean, it, not only that, groups, American groups can use them. I mean, you can, you know, there's a good argument that says that you know the way that Fox operates now, and this was not always true of Fox actually, Fox News, um, is a lot the way that RT, the Russia Today, operates. Right. It's very similar tactics. You know, some of it so it looks most of the time like a normal television station. They have some good journalists there. And then they have conspiracy theorists who occasionally appear to, to, to make bring the conspiracy theories into mm. the mainstream. That's what RT does. Right. That's exactly right. how it works. Um, and so there's an there's an argument. I don't know who learned from who actually. <laughs> it may it may have been that oh, RT. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, it may be that RT learned from Fox rather than vice versa. But but the point is that understanding how these tactics work, you know, anybody can do it. So what do we do about them? How do we respond? I I feel like they're sort of a slightly unfruitful policy debate, even more strongly outside the United States, because that's not the First Amendment, but to some degree from the United States as well, where sort of on the one side, politicians standing up and saying, well, you know, Facebook and Twitter just has to censor everything that's 
uh, racist or that's fake news. Uh, and we just, you know, need to go and make Silicon Valley, you know, comply with, with our political wishes and demands. And then on the other side, there's sort of people saying, well, no, that would completely destroy freedom of speech and there's nothing we can do and, and we should just sort of leave these platforms as they are. And you know, my hunch is that there's something in between. There are, there, there are things in between. I think the difficulty with this issue, and by the way, you know, if we, I don't know if you ever want to circle back to the original conversation, but I, this, by the way, I think is, you know, you ask why is there populism everywhere now all at once? You know, is yeah, it yeah. to do with the institution? I really think it's actually to do with the internet and the nature of news and the nature of the way in which people now get and process political information. But the problem, the problem. I, I with do the, want to circle back on yeah, that. Just, that's, just that's after your answer. <laughs> that's because that's what I think it is. But um, but the point is that you know there isn't in no country is there going to be a single institution or person whose responsibility it is to deal with this, and the response is. It's a very unsatisfactory response. I actually described it to a 19-year-old yesterday who laughed at me. He said, that's, that's, that's not interesting. But the response is going to have to be multiple. Like there will be several dozen responses. Like the response will be media literacy programs and it will be um, disinformation tracking programs and it will be political movements which seek to control the oligarchy. It will be... Um, a kind of, the, you know, the best and strongest response to this change in the way that people are getting news um, is going to come from, again, what we call civil society, but means journalists, activists, political parties, you know, ordinary people spending time learning how Facebook works. I yeah, mean, it's yeah. a, I think, I think that ultimately has to be the response. You aren't going to get a silver bullet, you know, there isn't going to be one regulation or one I don't know, one one solution. Um, and I think, um, I mean, the, the various platforms have are responding in different ways. They all are now aware of this kind of problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it may be that in, in order to avoid regulation, they begin to think about ways of dealing with it. That, that seems right. I mean, I think Silicon Valley was fatted for so long and saw itself as the good guy for so long, but they haven't quite understood how dangerous a real political backlash against them might be. Yes. And I think they're slowly starting to understand that, and that's going to increase their willingness to do something. Um, yes. This is only a small piece of a puzzle, and I'm, I'm really persuaded by your multi-prong approach. Um, but, it's, you know, it's, it's an unsatisfying thing to describe, though. I mean, it's, you know, if you want Sure, like, it's always easy to say, here's right a silver bullet. I, I think there are going to be about 12 answers, and right, they're going right. to come from about 15 different kinds of organizations and social groups. And they're going to involve everything from schools to, you know, to online hackers, organizations. To I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a huge range of. I, I agree, and and I'm just one thought about sort of you know Facebook, which people have talked about a lot, and which certainly is, I think, now the biggest purveyor of political news. You know, I think instead of Facebook either having to track every piece of fake news and censor it, you cannot tell your friends something you believe to be true because it's a conspiracy theory. On the one side. And just saying, oh, look, I mean, we are, we're completely neutral and let everything happen. On the other side, there is the approach of saying, okay, we will try and monitor the most viral stories, the stories that are spreading most quickly, that are having the biggest impact, and we will investigate those. And when we see that, you know, uh, there's a conspiracy theory about a child sex ring in the basement of a DC pizza restaurant, which is clearly untrue, then you know, we, we change the algorithm or we, we activate um, sort of a fake news part of the algorithm in such a way that, yes, you're allowed to share that with your 50 friends, 
but it's not going to be coming up on the top of news feeds. It's not going to be um, one of the viral stories on the sort of top right of the screen and so yeah, on. So there's ways sort of in between censoring what you can say to your actual group of friends and allowing fake news to just become completely rampantly viral on on Facebook. Yeah, but, I mean, the, 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 there, are, so there are a lot of people right now that I've, some of whom I've spoken to in the last few days, actually. There are a lot of people now looking for almost kind of mechanical or artificial intelligence answers. Like, could you identify fake news? Mm-hmm. Could could a machine do it? You know, because the because first of all, having individ- humans do it creates this appearance of censorship. And second of all, um, you need something that works at scale. And so there are a lot of people now looking at could you, or could you at least, for example, you know, if a story comes up, could there be some kind of automatic ranking that it gets mm-hmm. according to all different kinds of, right, right. you know, its source, the kind of language it uses? I mean, you could, there there would be ways of ways of ways of measuring it, and so lots of people are working on that. I mean, I don't think that's ever going to solve the problem completely, but it might be that eventually you could get a little ranking, or which of course would be disputable. Um, that would right. give you some information about a story or a piece or of... Or it might lead uh, the old right to suddenly use lots of complicated terms and the right. articles well, there, well, to fam- there's, a, there's, a, there's already <laughs> an example of that, which is that there's somebody has created a... Um, you, can, you can apparently do, again, it's a sort of machine learning AI program that will tell you whether a particular article is particularly hate-filled. Oh, like right, you right. can measure that. And then it turns out that the way to get around that is, you know, instead of using the word, you know, some instead of using any Semitic language, you you know, you insert the word fuzzy bunnies or something instead of Jews, and then, you know, and then you right, right. then you mess up the algorithm. So it's um there, you know, people will figure out how to get around that. We need algorithms that also penalize hatred of fuzzy bunnies. Exactly, um, the, and, then, and then you go into a, a weird rabbit hole and never come out. I mean, so it's, quite literally a rabbit <laughs> hole. Um, <laughs> just 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 to go back to um to the thing that you wanted to come back to, so. So yeah, I've, Eastern Europe is a puzzle to me in one specific respect, which is that I'm trying in, in the book that I'm writing, more or less I've finished, um, to give a broad account of the causes of populism, precisely because I think people, say, in America, just look at, at recent American developments, and so they attempted to come up with a bunch of explanations that, that are specific to this society. But when you see similar phenomena in other countries, and the specific causes aren't there, so it, it's got to be something else. And and Eastern Europe poses a puzzle to me because it seems to me that when you look at Western Europe, North America, even a lot of countries in Asia that have experienced populism, two things are true. The first is a real stagnation in the living standard of average people. You know, I've said this before in this podcast in the States, from 1945 to 1960, the living standard of the average American doubles. From 60 to 85, it doubles again. Since 85, it's been stagnant. And the second is, you know, dealing with rapid... Uh, increase in immigration, in the number of foreign-born people in your country, the sort of struggle to build an equal multi-ethnic society. Now, in places like Poland or Hungary, both of those reasons don't really seem to apply in a straightforward way. Poland has done phenomenally well economically since the late 80s when you were there reporting on the transition uh, from communism to democracy, right? The average Pole has increased the living standard by really quite remarkable amounts. And there's not that much immigration. So, so what, what does that there's say? There's no immigration, right? So, what does that say about? Uh, does that mean that that the story in Central and Eastern Europe is just a little different, or does that mean that actually 
all of this has nothing to do with economic stagnation. It has nothing to do with immigration. So, I, yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the role of both economic stagnation and immigration are both overplayed by quite a lot. Um, you know, what, ma- what matters a lot is not, it's not just what, what is real to people, like is there any real immigration or even is there any real economic threat. It's, it's a, a lot of it's to do with perceptions. And if you live, you know, in an online world where you're constantly bombarded by images of, I don't know, Muslim terror attacks in Brussels, um, you begin to, you know, you can fear immigration even if you don't know any immigrants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to be very careful about, you know, a lot of this is perceptions. I mean, I accept that there's real economic stagnation as well, but there's also, you know, you also have in Eastern Europe, for example, the phenomenon of, Okay, you know, you now have a new generation. So people who are my age, you know, people who are in their 40s or 50s have a memory, you know, of this incredible gain in in living standards, you know, yeah, this yeah. total transformation of the last two decades. People who are 20 don't remember that. Right. And they don't compare themselves to their parents or grandparents. They compare themselves to their contemporaries in Germany. Yeah, yeah or France, and why aren't we as rich as them? And so you can also get dissatisfaction by cross-comparison uh, to similar nearby societies, you know, that, you know, people, and people become very impatient. So, so all that those, so, 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 so there's a perceived, you know, there's a perception that we aren't doing well by comparison to our people in Germany, even though we are doing well by comparison to our grandparents. But so, you, so you see, so this is a tech that I'm tempted to take. Um, but I thought that perhaps you were sort of more critical of that, right? So, so it seems to me that, yes, um, the story that works everywhere else doesn't easily work in places like Poland, but a subtler version of it does, right? So you think about economics and it's like, well, it's true that their economic standard of living has, has hugely increased over the last 30 years. But they also say, you know what, a lot of the people in our society who have done really well are sort of the wrong people. It's not as bad in Poland as in some other place in Central and Eastern Europe, but it's sort of the old communist elites in a lot of places. That Which is actually up. not even true in Poland. But yeah. Right, in Poland that's true. But, but Although do people do believe that. Right. Right. who have done really well, right? So the wrong people did the best right. out of it. And I was told that once we come out of communism, we're going to have a standard of living of Germany and Spain and so on. But you know what? I still do earn a lot less than them. Even right. if I've gone and so gotten that's... a decent college degree, I still have reason to go and live in London as a barista or working in Starbucks because actually those are still the best options I have for a lot of people, right? And so, and there's, I think, a real fear of the future that Poles and, 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 and Hungarians and so on share with people and worse. Like, you know, I've done a ride. It's true that I have a lot more than my parents, but but I really fear for my for my children, right? Yeah. Generally speaking, I don't think Eastern Europe is very different from Western Europe anymore. I don't think they're kind of civilizationally different. Hmm. I don't think, you know, it, the, 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 the the differences are nuance rather than rather than being profound. I mean, remember they've been part of the same various clubs for right. twenty years. But the the one thing I would I would say is do pay attention to because when some of this started, you know, so the, the, the worst waves of dissatisfaction start in the last sort of five or six years in almost everywhere. Yeah. And it does coincide with more and more people getting their political news from social media. Interesting. Yeah. And that's the one actually thing that is constant, not only across Europe, but around the world. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, what is one of, what is, what is the Asian society that is most um, sort of most addicted to or most uses most often Facebook, it's the Philippines. And so so there is a way in which, um, uh, you know, and what does, 
you know, what does social media do? I'm not, I'm not, by the way, I'm not blaming social media for everything. I'm just saying it does change the way in which people start thinking and talking about politics. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that it does is that it undermines the authority of, you know, tr- you know I don't know, traditional parties and allows people to organize in different ways. And that can be very good or it can be very bad. I mean, it's actually politically neutral. You know, it's I like, agree completely, yeah. You know, it can be very good in the Arab Spring or it can be very bad. in the so, so people have alternate ways of organizing and they find different communities online. And one of the things that does is that it very, very rapidly it turns out that the old political parties no longer represent anything real. So what's the old political division in Europe? It's it's Christian Dem- in most European Christian Democrats whose social base was in the church versus um, the sort of socialist center left whose basis is in the trade unions. Well, guess what? Neither the trade unions nor the church is very influential anymore. People are finding, you know, they identify with, you know, with one another in different ways and they organize around different issues. Um, and the mainstream political parties don't represent that. And so people don't see in politics and they don't see on the sort of, you know, at the top of the political ladder, people or parties are the causes that they care about. And I think yeah. and that's a you know, so that's not to say that Facebook has you know done something evil, but it has by its existence, it's sort of disorganized politics. And in, in a few places, I mean, I think this is why this is, Macron was able to take advantage of this. You know, in some places, politicians have been able to adjust and take advantage of these new you know, people's new identities and new ways of identifying and other places they haven't been able to, like, for example, in the UK. And I think, by the way, the UK and the US are where it's most difficult for parties to change and where it's most difficult for new parties to emerge because of the nature of the voting, voting yeah. systems. So that's that's why it could be that European countries find it easier to adjust. So I hope that wasn't too complicated. A- no, no, not at all. I mean, I, I, I agree completely that... I mean, Social media is neutral in one sense, not neutral at all in another sense. I think it's neutral between left and right. It can be mobilized yeah. by by Trump or by Macron. Yeah, or, um, or Obama, yeah. Right, or by Obama or by Podemos. I mean, you know, I, I think in that sense it's neutral. I do think it systematically reduces the advantage that political elites have over outsiders. But it used to be that political elites and financial elites mm-hmm. just had access to a set of resources that most people in the society didn't. Yeah. It was one too many communication where if you had access of, you know, you you have a government and you, uh, you know, were a set of people who controlled the New York Times and, uh, you know, NBC and so on, you could determine what was part of a political discourse and what wasn't part of a political discourse. And that ability to control and narrow the bounds of debate has completely yes. been blown out in the last years. Yep. Now, in some countries where actually what was allowed was relatively broad, and what wasn't allowed was mostly sort of racism and anti-democratic sentiment and so on, that actually has pretty scary effects. Mm-hmm. In other countries, especially for Italian regimes, I think it might still yeah. be favoring the democratic opposition because the dictator now has less of a technological advantage. And so um, so it, 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 it is neutral between left and right. It's neutral even between pro-democrats and anti-democrats. Um, the way in which it's not neutral is that I think it systematically favors instability and change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. stability and continuity. Yeah. So this is another point that that the, you know, people have got sort of also, this is a more broader um, sort of phenomenon connected to the internet, it's not just social media, which is that people have become accustomed to things happening very fast. Yeah. So you can press a button and you can get, you know, a book delivered to your house the next day, or you can press a button and indicate your likes for somebody or some cause. And you can sort of therefore feel a little burst of whatever hormone it is that makes you happy, you know, because you've 
done something. You can donate money in one second. You can, all these things you can do very fast. Um, democratic politics is incredibly slow and it involves coalition building. Yep. And, you know, when it works, it often involves deal doing and sometimes deals that have to be negotiated behind the scenes or non-transparently in order for them to work. And so there's a, there is a frustration with democracy because it seems to work so much worse than everything else. So why is it that, you know, in my life, I can do all this stuff really fast and everything's really easy. And then I look at politics and everything is incredibly slow and stagnant. Right. Every, once forever. every four or five years, I get to go to a polling booth, make a choice between like right. three it different very options. Inefficient. Yeah. inefficient. And then you have, you know, and then you have the phenomenon of something you've, you've had you know, always, which is that then some people come along and say, right, I can do this all really fast and I can make it better really quickly. And, you know, which is essentially what Trump did. And, and, and the it, promise it, of simplicity is at the heart the of the promise of simplicity. Appeal. There was anybody a, who tells you that politics is complicated is lying to you. There's right. a self-serving. Right. Actually, it's all simple. Right. And once I'm elected. Right. I'll and, in, and in, you know, that's always, you know, there's always been an appeal to that. But I just think there's a particular appeal to it right now. Um, when everything else seems to be hmm. moves so quickly and politics seems to move so slowly. Um, and so that's why you've had the, 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 the increased appeal of that kind of language. You know, I can fix it. It can be done quickly. Um, we can just wipe away all this detritus. You know, so many things. Think about how many things are being wiped away and eliminated, you know, all the time now so quickly. I mean, it may very, you know, we may be the end of retailing maybe may right. happen in the next 10 years. And shops may disappear. And, you know, we've already seen the disappearance of, um, you know, of all kinds of other things. And so so the appeal of a politician who says, look, everything else is disappearing. Why don't I just wipe out all this old stuff about constitutions and boring courts? And, you know, and you can you can hear that in Trump's language, actually, oh, quite a lot. You could get a counter reaction to it, right? You could get politicians who say, you know, a, a public mood where it's like, no, I, I hate that the shops are disappearing. I hate that all of this is changing. Perhaps yeah. suddenly, you know, a political promise for 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 slowing change might become attractive. At the moment, that's not the case. At the moment, even centrists who win, like Macron, are candidates of change. That's that's the centrists who have done well. And some was Obama. I mean, Obama was never that radical politically. Um, he was always in some ways relatively centrist. Um, but, but the rhetoric was was obviously all about change. I, I want to pick up on a sort of half sentence you said earlier and 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 broaden it out to the last question, which is you were saying that actually Poland uh, was doing relatively well and well, not not doing relatively well, but you were optimistic about um, democracy surviving in Poland despite the uh, sort of attempt by the current government to to go on down the Hungarian and so on model. I mean, more broadly. Uh, across all of the different countries that you have such a deep understanding of in Eastern Europe and Western Europe and in North America, are we sitting through a thriller that will have a happy end? Or do we have to expect the worst? Will democracy survive this dangerous moment and, and rear its head triumphant? Or do you think that the democratic world will be significantly curtailed 20 or 30 years from now? Some of it depends on events and depends on things that happen outside the democratic world. I mean, if there is a war with Russia, which I still don't discount, um, you know, then that will, that will alter the, you know, that will alter the balance of power and that will change the way people see Europe and understand NATO and understand the role of the United States, you know. Um, so there, there are all kinds of things that are going to happen that we can't predict right now that will affect that. I mean, I think generally speaking, it's true that the attack on democracy can produce a, a kind of counter. 
um, you know, whether you call it a resistance or whether you call it a counter movement or whether you call it something reinvigorating, which could be healthy. Um, you could imagine, certainly in the United States, you could imagine, and certainly in um, um, certainly in Eastern Europe and you know certainly in Britain, you could imagine a a, a movement to renew institutions, which would be um, you know incredibly positive. Um, a lot of the question is just you know do we do we get to get to that point before there's a war or before mm -hmm. there's um, you know before there's some kind of tragedy you know associated with the current situation. Um, and, you know, in my more optimistic moods, I think, you know, we'll get through this. And then sometimes I worry that we may see a crisis, you know, in the next year or two that, that will prevent it. But so basically 90% chance of things turning out pretty well and 10% oh, chance of things turning out absolutely catastrophically. I didn't want to put numbers <laughs> in your mouth. But. Uh, thank you so much. This is a, a really wonderful and enlightening conversation. Thank, thank, thanks for coming thanks on the for podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, paint a giant mural of me and all of my past guests in your neighborhood. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.